Hello, everyone. This is David Coleman on this dreary January 18th at around 3 o'clock p.m. here in lovely Cincinnati, Ohio. It is time for another episode of Bridging the Gap. Again, I'm David Coleman. I'm known as the dating doctor around the world. I help people with their relationships and uh, relationships between people and organizations, etc. And I help try to help people with better public speaking skills and leadership training skills, those types of things. But Honestly, what I kind of love doing on these podcasts, because as the host, I get to choose some of my favorite guests and people that I think will help other people. The name Bridging the Gap came from the idea that people in life might be needing something. They might need an answer on relationships. They might have a question of faith. They might be facing a problem in their life, and someone or something could lead them in the right direction. And I'm really hoping that is the case today. I have the pleasure of having, and what I like about the relationship that my guest today and I have, excuse me, is we have kind of a rekindled newer relationship than than some of my friends that I've known throughout the course of my life. There was a long time when I was touring and you're going to hear what he was doing, magnificent things with his life. And then we kind of came back together and become much closer friends since. And it's one of my favorite, most cherished relationships now because of the the newness and the possibility involved. But my guest today, his name is Woody Sherwood, and he's known for being a highly successful culture coach, which we are going to talk about what that means. He had a really cool uh, career. He he coached NCAA Division I women's soccer at Towson University, Butler University, the University of Louisville, some amazing schools, Indiana University, and Xavier University. And here's the cool thing. He, he took that ability and that talent as a coach And through his leadership and guidance and the use of vision boards, which we're going to talk about, he now helps people set and realize their personal and professional goals and enabling them to reach and then exceed their potential. And of anyone I've ever met, I can't wait for you to meet him and you will in a minute. He really gets people moving in the right direction. He's also the president of UCAREED, which he will talk about what that is, and the author of several outstanding literary works, and the the dichotomy of them is remarkable. And kind of his bottom line goal is to help people build great culture, navigate crisis, and design their own destiny, which is the name of today's podcast. And oh, by the way, he's a pilot. Woody, welcome to Bridging the Gap. Well, thank you. I don't know that I ever had such a good introduction, and I don't know that we're going to top that. So uh, I think we might just call it a day now. (laughs) Having a day. Great podcast. Uh, Woody, thanks so much for being on. I know we had a, a few uh, electronic problems. Uh, some of my friends who follow the horoscopes would say something's in retrograde and was blocking our progress today. But uh, here's kind of the really cool thing that, you know, you I remember you, you were a student. When I was at Xavier working there, you were a student. And I remember the energy. You were friends with some other students who had this incredible energy. And I know you were an athlete. And But who know that, who knew, excuse me, back then, that you would go on to be a highly, highly successful women's division one soccer coach. How did you go originally from graduating from college? What path did you take to end up coaching women's soccer? Well, so graduating college was almost a stretch. I do remember uh, one of my business classes, I had to pass the final exam to graduate with my class. So uh, that was the first challenge of it. But um, Wow, I didn't know that. It was, and I forget the name of the class, Business Ethics, I think, which uh, I don't want people to get the wrong idea about me when they hear I, I almost <laughs> didn't pass the business, business Ethics, ethics. <laughs> so, but I did, and uh, the 
the really interesting part, uh, people sometimes want to know, how did you, yeah, well, how did you get then into coaching? What, what happened? And um, the story is not like anyone would probably suspect. Uh, I was a, what, a freshman at Xavier on the soccer team. And I remember we went to the conference tournament up in Indianapolis and it was played at this uh, stadium that was built for the Pan American games. And it was called Kuntz stadium. Um, kind of ironically, I ended up playing some home games there 15 years later when I was coaching at Butler. So we're at Kuntz stadium for the conference tournament and we are getting ready to play Evansville who was ranked top 10 in the country. Sure. And the prior year Evansville men's soccer had been number one in the country. So wow, huge opportunity. And um, I remember sitting kind of on the bench right before we took the field for warm-up and Evansville coming out of the tunnel and then their coaches coming out of the tunnel. And my draw to the first ever seed that was planted into why did you think about college soccer coaching was the Evansville coaching staff came out in matching silky purple uh, white striped Adidas track suits. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I should be a coach because I get to wear that. And seriously, that like just kind of was a small seed in my head. And then I hope that I hope that Adidas sponsored you throughout your career. And you basically like George Costanza would on Seinfeld wearing purple velvet. I hope you were wearing these jumpsuits for your entire career. Well, hey, two of the five schools were Adidas schools, uh, Louisville and Indiana. Uh, I think we were Nike at the other one. So, we, you know, we balanced it out. Equal opportunity here. Um, but, yeah, that was the first part of it. And then uh, I, I ended up uh, in grad school at Xavier, you know, several years later. And I had an opportunity to become an assistant coach with women's soccer. And that's where then my career took off. You know, it's it's you and I have done some personal coaching, too. I've tried to help you along your way where you're trying to advance your career, not only as a speaker, but as a consultant. And the funniest part of you struggling in business is you've become a very successful businessman. So the fact that you had to struggle, maybe from great struggles come great things. But uh, did you love coaching? Did you like it? Did you love it? Did you it, was, uh, love it? It, it was, it was great. It's passion. Uh, unlike I think a lot of people probably, um, who have what I'll call normal jobs. I think coaching is kind of an abnormal job because you, you know, you work on weekends and you have strange hours, but the, um, the energy and excitement is, is so great and the ability to impact people's lives. And I think that then led to some of these things I'm doing now uh, was coaching is really impacting people's lives. Now the, the lows I'll tell you for, for a coach, the lows, those extremes are far more gutting and painful and even some of these really special highs that I had as a coach. And, it, you know, it's enough to really question what you're doing. And people don't really always understand that because they think, so you lost a soccer game or whatever it might be, a recruit, a top recruit that you put a couple years of work into. Uh, but they really are. Those, those lows can almost take years off your life, I feel like. So these coaches that are able to have super successful careers and have really high winning percentages – uh, I mean, that that's the life. But for most of us, for most of us, you know, 500 is 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 what it is. I did a little study for one of the books I wrote. And I looked at a year of college NCAA Division One men's basketball, like 350 teams or whatever there were. Uh-huh. And 49% um, had winning records. So 51% of the teams in that given year um, 
had losing records or there were some teams that were, were even, were 500. So, you know, few people are fortunate enough to win at a really high level. Uh, I never had, you know, a lot of those years where you're, you're only losing a couple games. I probably melted in with the rest of us where you have some good years and some bad years and some medium years. Woody, when, when students are facing a problem, when, when players on a team are facing a problem, they go to each other. When pl- players on a team are facing a problem, they go to a coach. What is it, who does a coach go to? You're the head coach. If things aren't going well, if it's been a tough week, if it's been a tough month, you lose one you weren't supposed to. Uh, in this day and age, you recruit someone that you worked so hard for, you think you've got them, they portal away. Who, who does a coach go to? Well, I think the, the few lucky ones go to an athletic director, but, and that's not an insult on athletic directors, but they're, they're businessmen and women. And um, it takes a really special one to be able to understand, I think people probably assume, oh, athletic directors, they understand everything coaches go through. And uh, th- that's that's not true at that intimate level unless that AD has been a coach. Uh, now, there's, they're very supportive usually. So the network that we have as coaches uh, is each other. And, you know, you are in a really a, a tight-knit group of other head coaches and assistant coaches, depending on how many you know, if you're at Ohio State, there's what 35 or 40 uh, Division One sports there. At, at smaller schools like Xavier, I think we might have had 18. Depends on how many times you count. You know, indoor track, outdoor track, all that kind of stuff. Sure. So other coaches really are the special people in coaches' lives that can console and can be great, just boards to bounce things off of mm-hmm. and get better ways to do things. You know, I've thought about this since we have become closer friends and. <clears throat> excuse me, working together, just the way, like the way you are already on this podcast today, you handle yourself with tremendous confidence and class and ease. You're direct, but you still have a human component. And I always wish that I, my daughters who are, they're 29 and 32 now, I wish they could have played for you. I wish they could have been under your tutelage. And you know that I, you know that I travel, part of what I do for a living is I do speak at colleges across America. And without me saying what I think, there have been some changes in students over the last five to 10 years. And that's just from me being on stage, talking to my audiences, not someone like you working with them every single day. My question to you is this, what are some of the biggest changes or differences that you've seen in your players or players in general or young people since you initially began coaching? Well, I'd say two things immediately come to mind. Uh, One is, the their response to high stressors and the stressors seem to be higher and we can go into a whole other podcast on how social media and how they perceive themselves relative to their peers has affected uh, their self-confidence self-worth and success but i think that has changed changed our current student athletes and then you'd have an argument on either side of the fact that they have become far more empowered their voice carries a lot of weight and and that's great in situations where we've seen you know abusive coaches uh it's not great where we've seen players that maybe aren't getting enough playing time or um can't be really coached meaning if you tell them they're doing something wrong uh, that that's a personal attack on them and um they're gonna vent that at their end of year meeting with the athletic director so it's a it's a fine line between them having a voice and let's get out some of these coaches that really have overstepped their boundaries and are, and are hurting our young people versus 
some coaches that careers have been derailed um, because they're trying to make student athletes better. They're not abusive. It's the kid mm-hmm. didn't get the playing time that they wanted. And there's a couple of them that got loud voices and have parents behind it. And now all of a sudden um, there's some problems within the program. What are your coaches today in any sport across America coaching on eggshells? I think my friends that I'm still in touch with are they've had to change uh, how they do things. And the ones that haven't changed, uh, they, you know, some of them have gotten themselves into some, some slippery slopes with senior exit interviews and things like that. It's not as enjoyable a time uh, for a lot of them. Just again, that's the feedback I'm getting, but there's always places where, Hey, you happen to have a great group and you're successful because certainly when you have a lot of success in a season, those voices can fall a little more in deaf ears if we're, if we're winning. It's when a team starts losing and those voices get louder mm-hmm. and coaches become more apparent of, you know, their future at that program. And mm-hmm. now they definitely have to kind of assuage the concerns of these kids that could, uh, could kind of turn on them. I appreciate your candor. Uh, I really do. And I, I knew I was excited about having you on today because I knew you'd tell it like it is in a way that isn't combative or attacking or aggressive toward people. You're just going to tell the truth. And we named today's uh, podcast Designing Your Destiny. And I'm going to go through some of these things with you. But when I tell people, a friend of mine could really help you. You know, you're not sure where you're headed. You're not sure where your what your destiny is, where it lies. He can help you design that. What does it mean? When I say designing your destiny to you, what does it mean? Well, I think uh, I I use the word also sometimes kind of change your destiny. And since we don't know for sure what someone's destiny is, you could say, well, what do you have? You know, why do you use that word change? But I think we can see paths that people are on, whether that's our young people. You know, we've we've got friends or uh, relatives or neighbors who've got kids that are on paths that we would say their destiny may not end, you know, where we'd like it to. And that doesn't mean we like it to, they have to get into Stanford and they have to, you know, become a, a U.S. congressman or woman yeah. or something like that. Small um, goals, Stanford Congress, no big deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they, where they're going, though, becomes clear that we could do better. Maybe mediocrity is going to be what it looks like the destiny is. And I just feel like there are some things you can do and decisions you can make if you're committed to them. Um, and, and it isn't just, uh, you know, play the Wednesday night Powerball. Uh, that can change your destiny. And then design's a good word too, because that really means you're giving thought to how are we going to get there? What does the roadmap look like? We we called you, and I think you call yourself a, a culture coach. What does that mean? When, when we say the word culture, what are you talking about? So culture is something that is now becoming a really hot button in corporate America. It's always been around in, in sport because we, we all know as coaches that if our culture, meaning how this group dynamic works together, do they have similar beliefs, even though they come from, you know, different states, different areas of the country, different religions, different upbringings, these players on your team are never all cut in one size. Um, but if, if you have that good culture, you have a better chance of more success. And, and when you think about it, it, it should make sense that if you've got a divisive culture and people tearing it apart and not on the same page and not with the same vision, not sharing the same how we're going to get there, 
of course, it's less likely that you're going to achieve, say, in sport, a conference championship um, in business, the whatever it might be, the annual goals or best workplaces right. in America. You, you aren't going to get there with a bad culture. So uh, in corporate, it's becoming this hot button that I think is often misused. But I really think coaches have a much better sense of what it is day to day, what it really looks and tastes like. And that's why I wrote that second book, Engage, Excel, Succeed, was to take those lessons of building culture and sport, which is a great environment to practice it in, and transfer that and teach that into corporate America. We're going to talk about your books coming out of one of the upcoming breaks that we do. And I'm going to get you, I'm going to ask you, I know that you have an acronym that goes with culture, and I'm going to ask you coming out of the song to kind of briefly go over what each of the letters in your culture acronym mean. But before we do that, and I mentioned to you before that we uh, taped today, that the station loves to drop music into the podcast. And the first song we're going to drop today is by my friend, Paul Jones. It's called Two Rocking Chairs. And for a short synopsis of where this song came from, Paul was sitting in the radio station here in Cincinnati, and he was sitting there and he was working. And an elderly gentleman came to the window, to the door and looked in and Paul said, hey, how are you? And he said, come on in. And the guy said, what do you do here? And he goes, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a musician. I, I write songs and record songs. He goes, really? And the gentleman said, I had an idea for a song. I was walking over here and in a nutshell, he said, I passed a house with only one rocking chair on the porch and I'll bet someone died. I'll bet there used to be two. And so Paul had him come over and, and start singing. Paul started crying. Paul's sitting at the, the keyboard. And the song that you're about to hear now is a result of that. So and now I'm going to play Two Rocking Chairs by Paul Jones. I hope you enjoy it. One rocking chair Two used to be Sits a broken hearted man And his memories Right next to him In the evening breeze She sat by his side So faithfully Now he sits on that porch every night Staring at that empty space by his side I can't bear the pain I feel inside That someday there may be one less rocking chair in my life.
sits on that porch every night Staring at that empty space by his side I can't bear the pain I feel inside That someday there may be one less rocking chair in my life But two used to be Sits a broken hearted man And his memories That was Two Rocking Chairs by Paul Jones And I'll tell you a story I was on my way I was driving up Route 75 here in Cincinnati I was on my way to talk to the Ohio Northern University football team. <clears throat> Here I am going to give a talk, uh, a motivational speech to a football team, getting them ready for their training. Paul texts me and goes, dude, you got you to listen to the song. I just wrote it. He sends me that song. I have tears in my eyes driving up Route 75, getting ready to speak to a football team. So what I, I had to have an attitude adjustment before I got in front of your women's soccer team bawling, and they're like, who is this guy? So it was really something. So again, uh, for those of you just joining us, I'm David Coleman. This is Bridging the Gap. My guest today is Woody Sherwood, a culture coach, former Division I women's soccer coach, and just a, a wonderful businessman, entrepreneur, author, et cetera, and pilot, which we will get to. Woody, when we were talking about culture, what culture means, I know that, and I'm going to ask you to do it briefly because I know you have longer explanations, but you have a, an acronym called culture, and it means something. Can you share that with us? I do. I think if we Google uh, culture and find adjectives or words that would describe it, we'd come up with you know 100 or more that could fit it. So I really thoughtfully uh, reflected back on coaching and, and the best teams we had in terms of culture and some of the words that I felt uh, might represent it. So for me, here's what I designed. My first C, which is the only one that has – two different meanings. So for my sports teams and coaches, actually that, that C in culture is commitment and how do we get and build commitment. For businesses, I actually change that C to creativity because I feel that if you can really inspire and allow this workplace of creativity, uh, you are going to get way more buy-in People are going to have more joy coming to work. So that's the, the only one that has two different meanings. Joy right. coming to work. What what nice words to hear. You hear so many people who just despise it. And you and I both heard people say, if you love your job, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, it's not a job. Agreed. Yes, sir. So uh, then the, the U is United Vision. And we talked a few minutes back about whether it's a workplace or a team. Uh, people are not the same. They come from different makeups and backgrounds and things that are important to them. So we have to create in our culture, and I do this with teams. I help them. I don't tell them what the United Vision is. I work with them on what it might look like. What do they value? What do they collectively kind of can agree is important? So United Vision is two. The L is liable. And if we had an A in there, we'd say accountable, meaning if you want to have a good culture, you're 
employees, partners, teammates, whatever we're going to call them, they must be accountable for their, their behavior. Let me ask you a quick question on that, and then I'll, I'll let you go to T. Sure. Are you finding in today's world that people don't want to accept that liability and that accountability? They'd rather throw somebody under the bus? I think so. I, I mean, I feel like you've always had, we could go back probably, and you could look at your early years working at Xavier and identify an employee or a student in one of the groups that, oh, this, I can still remember this person doesn't take responsibility. But I feel that it's even more so now that there's, there's less accountability. And in part, honestly, I think it gets to some parenting of uh, not my kid. My kid wouldn't be, teacher, you better apologize to my kid. So Never underestimate the power of denial. Yeah. Sure. What's the T? The T is team, which our sports teams usually kind of get that. How I explain that more simply to uh, businesses would be if you are a good teammate, you are making somebody else better. So that's a way to get that across kind of simply without, you know, building it out 10 minutes is how did I make someone else better today? And that's a, that's a good teammate. That's what good teams do. That's awesome. The U? The U is useful debate. So in college women's soccer, um, debate, conflict, uh, it's hard to oftentimes get them to have those talks as a team or as individuals in a locker room. Guys, it's, it was a little easier when I'd been around some men's teams. Uh, they might go to even extreme of people are going to have a useful debate of throwing some punches in the locker room and then, hey, it, it's over. So getting people to understand that there's boundaries to uh, disagreements and it, it can't ever be a personal attack and things like that. So is it a useful debate or are we just wasting our time pointing fingers? Got it. Then the R is relevant. And if you are a coach or a manager, how do I make people think they're relevant or M would be matter? You know, how, how do they matter? And it's easy to see how the first team all conference player matters. Oh, they're getting all the awards. They get the trophy. It's easy to see how top saleswoman of the year. Let's recognize her at the banquet at the uh, kickoff to the, to the next year. It's easy to see how they matter, right? Everybody sees they matter and they got a financial bonus for it or some hardware, whatever mm, it is. Right. What about players? So a soccer game, you, have 11 starters and most teams in college will play another six, seven, eight subs, but then you got 25 to 30 on the roster. So how does player 18 to 30 matter? And oftentimes they would tell you, I don't feel like I matter. The coaching staff does a really poor job making everyone, including me, see my value and their value might be because they work their tail off in training and, and make it harder for that star forward to score goals. So she's getting better. He's getting better because they're playing against that reserve that might not get the accolades, but they are making that player better. Let me interrupt you right there. I just want to ask you a point blank question. I know that you work with coaches and teams all across America. And if you are someone who runs a team, runs a business, right? I'm just telling you right now, you can't have a better person who can come in and do some shorter long-term training with your folks. And let's say that there's a team with, with players who don't feel like they matter at some point in time. And your job as a consultant, I know darn well you're sitting down with that coach. How's that conversation go, Woody? One of two ways, right? We just talked about denial, accountability. If you have some people that are actually great about it and they recognize, hey, that is a that is a weakness. They're committing their time just to their stars, which absolutely, you know, we need to keep building on stars. 
Um, and, and then you have others who either feel, hey, I don't mind some attrition. That's fine if six kids quit every year. If I've got employees turning over um, every year because they aren't super successful, right? There's been sure. known examples of Fortune 500 companies to come to mind for me where they went so far as, hey, well, the bottom 10% we're firing every year. Uh, so, you, you know, you can argue, well, that that's great. It'll motivate those other people. Uh, well, maybe it motivates them just enough to do their job, not do it great, just do it enough to not get fired. And mm-hmm. is that is that really those people are coming to work super excited to be part of your organization, knowing that you don't value people beyond just production. And I understand bottom line and all that. And yes, we're not saying you keep everybody on the team. If, if they really do not provide value, you do not keep everybody in your workforce if they do not. But are there some people that aren't your top sales? Are there people that aren't your starting 11, though, that are super collaborative behind the scenes, uh, provide great leadership when the leaders aren't there? So in coaching, that means when the leader leaves the locker room, whose voice is being heard uh, when the CEO isn't in the team meeting, whose voice is being heard. So that that kind of stuff in terms of, how are people relevant? And then the final the letter is E, it's empower. You know, if you want people to go the extra mile and, and come in on Saturdays and things like that, uh, they have to be allowed to make decisions for themselves and then be rewarded for it. And if they fail, then that gets into how you are coaching them up on, you know what, you, they, we, we tried to empower them and they took the opportunity and it didn't work this time. Gotcha. Um, let me see if I followed. If I followed you correctly, with culture, you're going to work with certain audiences. It's going to be commitment. With a, with an athletic team, it's going to be commitment. With a business, an organization, it might be more about creativity. You're going to talk to them about united vision, which is kind of, you know, identifying what where they're going and, and what's their united vision. Being accountable through being liable. Uh, team. And with obviously with an athletic team, it's being a team and team concept. But with businesses, it's kind of... Uh, making sure what was that again with businesses well both both are pretty equal it's how did i make somebody else better today one of my you know associates in the business uh, am i you know working selfishly or selflessly what are we doing to make everybody good that's great then useful debate and i remember meeting with you and talking about this you're like complaining without offering a solution come on what are we doing Mm -hmm. here and then uh, uh why and how is each person relevant how do they matter and how do you empower them? That's fabulous. And I remember one of the first times we had one of our coaching meetings and you started to talk to me about vision boards and what one was. And to be quite honest with you, I hadn't worked with one before. You, you might as well have been talking a foreign language to me. And I asked you, can you, can you tell me what you mean? And you pulled out your own. And do you mind telling this listing audience what a vision board is, what it might look like and why it matters? Sure. So, uh, this is going to kind of be a little bit along the lines of that opening story of I saw the coaches walk out in purple track suits. And I was like, well, maybe I'd love the coach. That looks cool. So my my first vision board experience was was unintentional. So you have to go back to six years old. And my dad, who was also a general aviation pilot, he took me flying over the hills of Western Maryland. We grew up uh, just outside of D.C. So we drove out to this airport and went up, and I remember still parts of it. I can picture, you know, a little bit of flight over the mountains. I can picture coming into land, but I was probably six years old. And I thought, and that's so cool. I, I want to do that someday. How neat. So 
at age 16, 17, I still like being around airports. Be a good time to start training pilot, but um, I didn't. I don't know. You're, you're 17. You're just busy with other stuff. And then I got my first head coaching job at maybe 27 years old. So now I've got an actual salary. I don't have wife, kids, anything. Yeah, good opportunity. And I didn't do it, but still like going to air shows, being around airplanes. Hmm. Get to Butler now in Indianapolis. There's four or five small airports within probably 40 minutes of campus. Be a good time to start. Nope, didn't. Ended up at Indiana University, 35 years old. I'd left head coaching at Butler to try and climb the ladder in the Power Five conferences by being an assistant at a big time place. So that's a lot of people do that. I get it. Yeah. And it's, that's what actually took me to Louisville for a year. And then the opportunity at Indiana opened up. So I get to Indiana. I'm there for a couple of weeks. And for some reason, I went on to the Bloomington Airport's website, five miles from IU. And on the homepage, there is this twin engine airplane sitting on the ramp. And I think it was for sale or something. And it was mm-hmm. a cool looking plane. I printed out the picture and I tacked it to the board above my desk. Still no reason exactly why I did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, maybe it'd be cool to own an airplane one day. So that plane I saw, of course, every day, all day. And maybe four weeks in, I picked up the phone after staring at that picture, getting in the morning, called Bloomington Airport, asked them if they offer flight instruction. They did. And I don't know, four or five months later, I had my pilot's license. Wow. And a year later, I had my instrument rating. And I think without that serendipitous moment of printing and putting that picture up, which was the beginnings of a vision board, because a vision board that we might find right now, if we Googled it, we'd see a, a board with 20, 30, 40 words, phrases, pictures. And that can be overwhelming for somebody who wants to start a vision board. Well, how, how do I know what pictures to look for and find? So that was the easiest way. It's one thing one thing and then it gets bigger and then it gets more sophisticated and it becomes an actual board that the left side is the process how are we going to get there what do we have to do every day as part of the process to get to the right side of the vision board the right side of the vision board would have a picture of a physician working on a patient because maybe you want to be a doctor it might have a ivy league school that you want to get into that's the right side it might have a check for $5,000 because you want to become a professional speaker and eventually you want to command that for one session. As do I. As yes. do I. <laughs> As do you. On the left side, though, is well, what do we have to do? My, my left side, for example, one thing says take action every day. Every day, have to take some action step. It could be sending out one introductory email to a college. It could be working on your marketing flyer. It could be when I was working on my first book that I knew would help me become more marketable as a speaker, could be going in and writing another paragraph, writing another chapter. And eventually you get this and it inspires you when you look at it, you should get goosebumps. And there could be phrases like, you can do it, you got this, whatever it might be for whatever you want to become, wherever your destiny wants to take you. And it's never wrong. This is great. So let me make sure. So on the left side, we have kind of, where we might be or where the process is going to begin. And as you go across the right to your vision board, maybe more toward the right side are things that have actually manifested a doctor operating on a patient, someone flying a plane. If I'm not, if I'm not, I'm not uh, mistaken, one of our first times we got together and I looked at your board wasn't, and if you don't mind telling the story, wasn't there a picture of Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres? Yes, that's good memory. So my right side of the board has uh, Ellen DeGeneres, and she's interviewing a guest. 
And when I show my vision board and I do let people point to slides and say, hey, what is this one or that one? One of the top three pictures, I call them a slide, pictures on the board that gets the most attention. People are always like, what is, what is that Ellen? Why is the set of Ellen on there? And it's because I felt like my program can be good enough that with the right traction, I would be on the Ellen DeGeneres show, being interviewed about how I am impacting people's lives, changing the world. And the guest that she's interviewing had to kind of work to find this one because me, Woody Sherwood, has not yet been on Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, is, I guess now that the show is no longer you want. I know, it's no longer, so we got to change it, which I did. <laughs> uh, it's Woody Harrelson from the Cheers series long ago, sure. Hunger Games, you know, tons of movies. Woody Harrelson, because Woody Sherwood has not yet been on. And that that tried to make it even closer to reality for it's me. so great. I, I love just that. put a random person in there. I put another Woody in there. So that's the slide or picture you are referring to. So bottom line on what a vision board does, whether you're working with an individual, a corporation, a staff, a team, an athletic department, uh, an in-service training for some weird, if people are doing a vision board, it is, and, and just finish this sentence for me, it is to help them achieve their destiny, greatness. I could keep adding words to it. Give them a plan in life, get them out of the rut they're in. Hope, I talk about hope. People need hope. We always think our young people that have so many mental health issues. Well, so do adults too. Uh, but one of the greatest things you can have in those times and days of despair and rejection and failure is hope. And those mm. pictures on a vision board give you hope. Hmm. Wow. That's really fabulous. And I, I, when I listen to you and you're making me think of the Shawshank redemption where they're in the, they're in the yard and, uh, uh, Andy Dufresne's talking to Red, and he, he says, you know, basically Morgan Freeman says, you got to stop hoping. And he looks back at him and says, no, you can't stop. Hope's, hope's what I have in here. Hope's all I have. And he goes toward it. And when, I, when I'm with you and we talk about certain things, yeah, you, you get excited about coaching, and I see that. And, yes, when we're talking about your books, which I promise we will do, you get excited about that. The other thing that you get, I just see you, <clears throat> you become a different person. As we're talking about you being a pilot, I know that you're proud of it. I know you take it very seriously. And you've probably gotten sick of me, but whenever there's a major crash somewhere in the world and it becomes public, I usually text you and I go, Woody, what's your take? Why did this happen? And you usually come right back with something on why and how you think it might have happened. We both know that you also do something called Fly the Plane. It's a program that you do. And where the name came from, I remember you telling me, would you mind describing what Fly the Plane is for a pilot? and what fly the plane is in your program and do it fairly briefly as we're going to go toward other topics. Sure. So if any of our pilots are listening to the podcast, uh, they'll know exactly what that phrase is. And when you are first introduced to those first couple of days of instruction, you hear that phrase. And what it means is when something happens, uh, could be as significant as an engine failure, or it's a pilot who's not instrumented and accidentally they get into clouds and now they lose all sense of up and down. And, and that is a life-threatening situation. So when that happens, fly the plane will trigger in all of our heads. And there's three parts to it. Aviate is the first one. Aviate means we cannot make this situation any worse. So a panic would make it worse. But what decisions are we going to make that keep things under control? Uh, let's not make it worse. Navigate. 
where do I need to go? Notice I did not say, where do I want to go? So we talk about the U.S. air flight with Sully Sullenberger, who had the double bird strike. And he said, turning back to LaGuardia when he called air traffic control, that's where he wanted to go. He quickly realized where he needed to go was the Hudson River. If he had tried to go where he wanted to go, in spite of everything going against him, uh, it would have ended badly for people on the ground and for people in the plane. So where do we need to go when we have these times of, of some failure? Again, we'll use the simple one of a, a, my dream has been to get into this school and I did not get it or this job interview and my world is over for a 19-year-old, a 17-year-old, a 23-year-old. Um, okay, well, wh where do we now need to go? Let's kind of regroup and figure out where we need to go. We're not going to make this problem any worse. Third is communicate. Who can, who can I talk to? Who can help me? Air traffic control was who Sully ended up talking to. But if you ever watch or listen to the automate or the animation, uh, which I actually share in one of my programs, and it's, it's, it gives you goosebumps when you see the animation overlaid with the audio. He has the bird strike, and it's not for probably 30 seconds that he communicates because the order is a aviate. If you start communicating right away and you're flipping buttons on the radio and trying to get somebody to help you, mommy and daddy, uh, the problem may get worse real quick in the cockpit. So it's an order. Aviate, navigate, communicate. And you're basically saying that anyone for anything, obviously pilots have more training and then that cockpit and it takes on new meaning. But if I have a problem today, I should aviate. I should stay the course, figure out what I have to do, not panic. I should navigate not where I want to go, but where I need to go, what would help me solidify an answer to that problem and communicate with not only myself, but with the right people to make it happen. Absolutely. And we still use that phrase in our household. I've got a 23-year-old and 19-year-old. And uh, certainly in high school, you'd hear that around our house of somebody gets cut from a team, somebody got a terrible grade, they're in tears, panicking about what this means. And you, you might hear myself or my wife <laughs> say, fly the plane, fly That's the plane. so great. Woody, as I knew what happened, this podcast is flying, and I need to drop in the second song, uh, which makes <laughs> the song I'm going to drop in again by Paul Jones is called Last Grain. It's uh, one of the songs on Bootleggers Music Group Radio that is doing the best. And, boy, if you don't uh, aviate, navigate, and communicate, you might be facing your last grain. So I think it's a good time to drop this in. This is Last Grain by Paul Jones here on Bootleggers Music Group Radio. Father wants ask me, son, how do you want the world to remember you? Will they smile when your name is mentioned, or will your name fade like the morning dew? Life is like an hourglass, only so many days, so much sand. When that last grain is falling, sun, that's the measure of a man. Yeah, the measure of a man. Tomorrow may never come. Yesterday's already been seen. 
Live your life song in that space Called the in-between What a shame it takes getting older To think about all the things you gotta fix and do before that Once this day is through And if that second the last grain is just falling And you know what would you do? Yeah, what would you do? just love that song. That was Last Grain by my friend and uh, person who motivates my life, Paul Jones, the founder of Bootleggers Music Group Radio that's allowing us to be on with you today. And I uh, hope you enjoy the as much as I did. And what we've got a few minutes left here, and there's some things we haven't gotten to. Let's, let's talk right now about, uh, can you go through and kind of give us a synopsis of the different books you've written? And what I think is amazing, basically you more than anyone I've ever met in my life, the the dichotomy of topics and you've got something that's perfect for building culture and businesses and a children's book. I, I don't see many people differentiating their careers or their knowledge base like that. Would you take us through what books you've written, where the idea came for and uh, tell us about them. Right. now, about to have a fourth and yeah, as you put it like that, it is interesting. This, uh, this, the different uh, avenues that I've taken on all four of them there. The first one was Co-Prize Thrive and, and that's would you slow that down again and, and, and go back to English and what was that again? The, the first one was Cope Rise, Cope Rise Thrive, and that was really taking my UCARE program and teaching people how to prevail in the fog of anxiety and despair and setbacks and failures and some of those things that we've talked about. Uh, that one's kind of cool, I think, because you could just pick it up and flip to any chapter. You don't, you don't have to be in order, you could flip to 
vision board chapter. You could flip to something on goal setting. You could flip to self-talk. And it's just a quick little read, pick me up ideas to take for yourself or your spouse or your kids. The second one was that engage, excel, exceed that I alluded to earlier. And that was uh, the kind of the subtitle of that is the business playbook for creating phenomenal performance and championship culture. Wow. And it's taking my 22 years in sport and how do we create that culture? How do we build engagement? And then, as you just mentioned, kind of my creative outlet or an additional level of creative outlet uh, had me write where the sky never sleeps. And I, I always have to explain when I say, well, it's children's genre, but I've had plenty of adults read it because I don't write it like, a, a, you know, an eight-year-old would, would uh, necessarily, as we would think, you know, would have these five word sentences and things like that. An eight-year-old can read it and an 88-year-old can read it. And I've had adults text me and say, I loved it. It was just a great story, family adventure mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, so that's cool. And then I was about, I don't know, a third of the way into the follow-up to that book, because it was going to be a series, when I had an adult who I respect who'd read it, text me and say, you should take a shot at a novel. I thought, oh, man, that that would be overwhelming. Just the sophistication, wordsmithing involved and and how slow sometimes that process is to not overdo it uh, by trying to use too many big fancy words. But you can't write it the same way you can write that certainly the nonfictions or even the children's book. So October 2nd, I paused the children's book, the second one, and I am about 90 percent done with the first draft. Now, of a I, novel. Of the novel. And Can I ask learned, a quick question? Yeah. First of all, you have a full-time job. You, know, you work for a friend of mine in the laser industry, and I think that's pretty neat. Oh, then I'm also going to be a culture coach. Oh, then I'm also a pilot. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I have a life. When do you find time to write four books? Oh, and oh, by the way, I'm going to start on October 2nd, and on January 18th, I'm going to be 90% done with a novel. Where's that time coming from? Well, well, fortunately, my laser job, he allows me a ton of flexibility. Uh, I, I don't have to work full-time, full-time, so I can travel to go meet with teams and groups because otherwise I, I, I couldn't be doing that. Um, but yes, you are right. The, the, the combination of everything is a lot. Uh, the answer really is, I unfortunately, I wake up earlier than I'd like. I'm usually up uh, by five or so, but I will... Um, head over to the club and I'll write and then I'll work out and then I'll go into our laser place and uh, do some work there. And then um, I'll come home and maybe write a little bit or if I'm working on something for you care, my Woody speaks thing or my Mm -hmm. website and the kids are now out of the house and no more sports staff to, you know, work in getting the games and everything. So that I guess makes it a little bit easier, but it's, it's a lot, but it, uh, you know, it gives you passions and energies in multiple different areas. Well, it sounds to me, I'm learning more about you even on the podcast than I know about you personally, but it sounds like you have adopted and maybe even designed a plan of action to pursue personal greatness. And that's, you know, many of us say that. You're also, I happen to know you're also physically fit. You take that seriously. You take your family very seriously. So nobody is, usually when you see someone, I'm going to write a novel, the rest of their life suffers. Their family suffers. Their relationships mm-hmm. suffer. That doesn't seem to be happening with you. 
And I'll just say that's a tremendous role model for other people. Well, no, we need to get my wife on here real quick and see if she agrees. But no, I think she would agree, <laughs> she, she would agree with you, I think. Yes. Yes. The the balance. But, you know, the, the knock, because I tell you, I've got flaws and faults. And I do question, hey, what if you picked one of those areas? What if you picked the culture part or the you care part or the author part or the flying part or the laser finance part? And you just committed to that. Just, oh, man, you could really take that. But uh, that's not my DNA. My DNA is to always be chasing, um, pursuing challenges and not just kind of setting myself into one thing. But, you know, mm-hmm. you could have some people come in and coach me and say, hey, what if you want to be even more successful, just get rid of everything else in your life and do this one thing. And I'm not saying they'd be wrong, but for me, it would be wrong. You know, I, I knew this was going to happen. If you could see where, if you could see my office right now and Obviously, I'm talking, we're, we're doing the podcast. I have little notes and little pieces of paper every day because I knew how diverse your talents were, that I had little questions all over the place I wanted to ask you. We're never going to get to them all. I'll make sure that people know how to get in touch with you if they want to hear about your E equals MC4 formula or how you actually, if you're going to be hired to work with someone on leadership training or culture coaching or to speak in front of a group, I'll make sure they know that. You, Bridging the Gap is meant to help people. So- we both know there are going to be some parents listening to this right now. And you've spent 20 years plus with high school and college age people. I would love to know the biggest piece of advice you have for parents. And given this, let me, let me explain this to Woody. There might be someone sitting out there who has a child they believe is decently a gifted athlete. And they, they might be interested in seeing, is this child good enough to play at the next level? Is there a scholarship in their future? You know, your knowledge of soccer talent and attitude and drive and desire is exceptional. What advice can you give parents who aren't sitting at home right now with the knowledge you have in your head? Well, okay. So try and do it quickly for you. I think the first thing, go ahead. The first thing that, that comes to mind that the mistake, you know, that I see too regularly with parenting is this, uh, not allowing failure. And it comes from, the right place. You don't want your kid to be upset and you love your child, but it's very dangerous because here's the thing is we would have players come into our programs that um, had had minimal failure. And it was clear why it was because uh, the parents had eliminated all possibilities for it. The parents really ran the kids' mm-hmm. lives. The kids didn't take responsibility over a lot of things they were doing. They were completely unprepared a to handle then college life without their mom there uh, every day to, to do their laundry and make decisions for them. Um, and as well, they were not prepared then when they had the inevitable failure that a college student athlete will have living away from home in the dorm playing at a high level. So they did not develop these because parents eliminated failure, whether that's calling the high school athletic director and coach and saying, how dare you not put my kid on varsity, which, you know, happens all over cities across America um, or, Going so far as the, the Texas cheerleader mom who wanted her daughter to be cheerleader captain, so she puts out a hit on the cheerleader. I mean, there's there's an extreme of it, but yes. the, the failure part. And then sports-wise, the second part of your question, uh, the harder you push, the less likely your kid is of enjoying it, loving it. And if they do not have passion, they cannot sustain it, and then they will not be able to play at that scholarship level. And again, we could point out the one in a hundred thousand where no, this college quarterback, his dad 
designed everything. He wasn't allowed to do anything except work. And look, it paid off. He got a scholarship mm-hmm. and went and played. And uh, yeah, and uh, and then he ended up homeless on drugs or whatever the scenario might play out. And we can see different stories that have happened that way. Well, let me ask you this. As a, as a coach that I admire, and I, I just know you're going to give me a direct answer, two things. When you watch a player, when you watch a student, a player, react to failure for the first time, can you immediately gauge whether they've ever been allowed to experience failure before? That's question number one. Go ahead and do that one. Well, gosh, as soon as you said that, I was picturing this isn't like the story I have talk about regularly or anything like that. I just pictured this one, and this one is from probably 19, 2000. But as you were saying that, I am picturing a goalkeeper at a school that I was at, which was Butler. And this was a player that um, we gave up or she gave up four goals in the first exhibition game of the season. Mm -hmm. And when she came off the field, there was something very different. And it was apparent right then and there. And I I just kind of processed it in real time that, you know, she had a lot of success as a high school player and her club soccer team and um, you know, was a upper middle class kid and nice parents. But uh, I feel like that player had not been exposed to as much failure. And she was a mess coming off an exhibition game as a young player. You can be hard on yourself and, hey, OK, I'm going to work and get. But it was clearly a deer in headlights that was due to not having experienced enough failure in middle school, high school Whatever well, you can tell immediately by the reaction here. Here's the flip side of that. Let's say that you and I are, we're going to go watch some, uh, there's a bunch of high school kids. They're in a tournament. You and I decide to go wander around and you're going to show me the ones you think could play at the next level. Where are the, where are the college potentially uh, applicable athletes on this field on this given weekend day, as we're walking around, is there an it factor? Can you watch a player dribble around and just literally take a shot and go, Wow. Yeah, I think coaches can, we can all identify pretty quickly the athletic kid and uh, the the talented kid. And if we went to a really high level tournament, you know, high level recruiting event, there'd be a lot of those. So then it's, well, what's the separating factor? You're walking around going, God, Woody, we're down here in outside of Orlando, Florida, and we have the best club teams in the country. There was just an event there two weeks ago. Uh, Boy, how do, how do they separate these kids? There's so many of these kids are so good. There's look how fast they all are. These are the top teams in the country. How do you tell the one that's in rarefied air? Uh, their their mentality, I think. If you can get a sense of how they're responding um, to success and failure in the moment of the game, how they're responding as a coach yells out something, their kind of psychological makeup as much as you can. Now, then, of course, you're going back with notes and trying to get an honest answer from their club coach, high school coach of. Hey, what's this kid's mental makeup like? You know, how are they with with teammates? Are they are they good teammates, or are they um, kids that are clearly not going to be embraced by the rest of the squad? Which you can still recruit that kid, but they better be you know the player of the year in the conference to make it worth you doing that. That's my take. There's some coaches that probably it's great. Say screw the rest of the team. I'll bring in the best player, and if everybody hates her guts and she hates them, it's fine with me. What well, a couple things. Number one. I'm going to call Paul later tonight, the guy who uh, founded our station. He runs it, everything. And I really think it would be wise if you come in uh, from 9 to 11, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, he's on the air with Paul live. We'd love to have live guests. And it can be Zoom. <clears throat> that part can be Zoom, so you could be home. But we'd love to have you in as a guest, I believe, and maybe even get some live questions for people. And number two, before we run out of time, how can people reach you who 
might want to hire you as a speaker or help them work on a, on a plan of action to design their destiny or a vision board or creating culture in an organization or for a team? How would they reach you? Sure, I'll give you three things. One, the email address, easiest probably, it's info at woodyspeaks.com. But then if they really want to take a deeper dive into a little bit more of what we talked about, I have two different websites. I have woodyspeaks.com, and that's kind of the culture and engagement part. And then I have UCARE, and that's spelled with a U, U-C-A-R-E-E-D.com. So UCARE-ED.com. And that's the kind of pieces from that first book, Cope, Rise, Thrive, you know, how to become more resilient and how to deal with setbacks, failures, adversity, fly the plane is in there. So, and both of those websites, obviously have the contact info as well. It's awesome. You had no idea this question's coming. So I'm just going to do it. We've got a few minutes left. What's on your vision board right now, Wood? What's on your vision? What's on the process side? And what's the doctor operating on the other side? I'll give you one from the process side. It's uh, instead of a picture, there are pictures, of course, but it is a um, word. And the word is bestseller. And <laughs> that bestseller is my goal is to have this novel be a New York Times bestseller, which again, most people probably wouldn't throw that out there because most people are afraid of, well, that's one in a million. You're just telling the world here about something that you may fail at. But again, that's I'm wired differently. Uh, the right side uh, Ellen DeGeneres, like you said, is off the air. So that set has been replaced by the Good Morning America set. <laughs> That's awesome. That's truly awesome. A uh, minute or two left. You have a moment to, we, we just turned into 2023. We're 18 days in. Some people have already set some goals and forgotten them. Some never set them in the first place because they probably knew to themselves they would never fulfill them. What could you say right now? to not only encourage people to set some short and long-term goals, you got about two minutes to do it, Wood, but to follow through. So the first thing I'd say uh, is eliminate the traditional worldwide accepted by people way smarter than me method of SMART, you know, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. Uh, and people are going, what? That, that No, that is goal-setting. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I think those all make sense. That's a specific goal, a measurable goal. It does not work for 90 plus percent of the population. It does not work too. There's no goosebump factor of, of, of the way most of this is done of writing down, you know, whatever. I, I want to lose 10 pounds and I want to um, learn a language and I want to whatever. That That's not the same as seeing that picture of, you and an airplane traveling to Mexico because you want to be fluent in Spanish and then go spend a month there or whatever it might be. So the first part is, yes, you can consider the ideas with the smart goal setting, but the vision board stuff, I think you're more likely to act on. Plus you're seeing it more regularly. The pictures as you scan your eyes across your desk, half a second, they're in your brain. If you've got it written down, you're like, okay, Larry, let me read this again. What are the five things I wrote? And then the second thing, I t- last thing I guess I'll tell you is I tell people the other problem is goals are typically given up on or I don't want to do them because they're black and white. It's I lost 10 pounds in six months. I did not. I got the promotion. I did not. It's black and white. I think that's the wrong way to look at it. So when I do my programming in person, I put up this scale and it's just a color scale. It runs left to right. Picture a ruler. About 30 ruler. seconds would. And it goes... 
red on the left and the color spectrum starts changing gradually to green, uh, yellow, light green, dark green. Dark green would be, I lost all 10 pounds. I got the motion, but maybe we didn't make it all the way to the right. We got light green or yellow. We lost five pounds. We lost six pounds. That is success. Goal setting does not have to be black and white. Success can come from partial wins. I love that. I love that. And let me end this, this podcast this way. You, you know that I coach people. I coach people who have better relationships and I coach people on public speaking. And with you, it's gone more into depth than that. It's not just about speaking. It's about your career and the impact you're going to have on the world. Rarely does someone that I'm coaching turn around and change my life. You have. So I appreciate that I think differently. I handle adversity differently because we've become better friends. I've been present to, to proofread some of your work and it's changed my life. And I really want to thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, I think you shared a tremendous amount of information. Uh, we'll be in touch very, very soon about having you on come on the morning show, but thanks for being on with us today. Wood. Hey, thank you, Dave. And thanks for all you've done for me and for, for everybody that you've worked with over the years. Thank you. This has been uh, bootleggers music group radio. This is bridging the gap. This has been David Coleman with special guest culture coach, Woody Sherwood. I hope if you listen to it, you suggest that others do as well. This one can change a lot of lives. See you next time. And you've been listening to Bridging the Gap with David Coleman. You can check out all of our podcasts and radio shows online at our website at www.bootleggersmusicgroup.com. Be sure to download our app. You can listen to all our shows in our app at any time on demand.